Hello, hi, I'm Erin Vandevin. Thanks for joining me today. This is Medium Lady Talks. This podcast is about figuring out the medium effort way to get the most out of life today. I hope the things I unpack here can role model and invite you to sort out your own ways to live life in the present. This is a show about experimenting to get closer to what matters most. I'm glad you're here, so let's settle in. Hello, hi, and welcome to Medium Lady Talks, episode 32. I'm going to run down all of the books that I read in winter 2022. Before I get into that, if you are new to this podcast, welcome. It has been a while since my last episode, and there's a couple of reasons for that, but the most um, important reason is that I just kind of hit a dip in my physical and mental health, and... While I have a lot of ideas for the podcast and a lot of excitement and pride around the podcast and around having made over 30 episodes of this podcast in the last year since launching in March of 2021, I just didn't have the physical, mental, emotional space to produce and be creative. And there's a perfectionist side of me that feels really weird about that and feels really bad about that. I feel guilty to you, my listener, if you have been enjoying episodes, but they haven't been showing up in your feed. And yet there's also a part of me that needs to trust that the Medium Lady community is supportive and generous and compassionate because that's what I try to role model for others is being supportive, generous and compassionate to the people around me is really important value for me. So I'm going to just have to cross my fingers and trust that taking a break for me isn't going to negatively impact my creativity or negatively impact what I produce through my creativity. And that if I need to take a break, what I have created and made doesn't mean anything less. It still holds significance. It still is important. It still has value even if uh, I'm not, you know, churning out content. (laughs) One of the things that really helped me kind of uh, change my perspective and adjust the pressure that I was putting on myself while I was really not feeling well is consuming creators who are not part of the mainstream. I'm sure we're all listening to things like Armchair Expert or the Smartlist podcast. Many of us are listening to podcasts put out by NPR or the Daily News or podcasts that are generated by, you know, thought leaders, people like Brene Brown, or pop culture podcasts, even people like our beloved Kendra Adachi from the Lane Sea Genius, people who are capital P podcasters. And that can create an illusion that podcasting has to happen in a very specific set of structures that podcasting has to happen with a very specific editing application, that podcasting has to happen on a very specific schedule. Podcasting has to look and feel a certain way in order to be valid or validated. And I started consuming some podcasts from folks that were sort of not taking it as seriously as I thought we all were. (laughs) I thought we were all following the rules of adhering to a regular posting schedule, of promoting ourselves regularly with social media posts and engagement and reels and videos and editing every last verbal tick or 
gasp of air out of the podcast and listening to people who had made very specific choices about their release schedule, about their editing practices, really helped me to understand that I was holding myself to a standard, or not that I was, but my efforts to hold myself to a standard of creativity, the likes of which the capital P podcasters are putting out, was both unrealistic, but was also creating too small of a sandbox for me to create within. And that sandbox was really keeping me from feeling like if I needed different parameters to be creative, that I could have those parameters. And that's all constructs of my mind. None of that is real. None of that is proven. And taking a break and stepping away from that been a good opportunity for me, especially because Medium Lady Talks just hit the one year mark. And I'm so proud. I'm so proud of myself. I'm so proud of our community that's growing. And I can hardly believe it. I do listen back to some of my old episodes and really think like, wow, what was going on then? And and that's really so helpful and useful. And <laughs> I've made the joke before that I am my target audience. And I'm really glad that I've made this for myself. And I've spent a lot of time worrying too much about what others would think of my voice. I spent a lot of time worrying about what the people I work with would think of this podcast, what the people in my family would think of this podcast. What would my mom and dad say if they listened to this podcast? What would my husband say if he listened to this podcast? And that kept me in a box for a really, really long time. And it even kept me in a box once I started creating content. But it was really only from starting that I was able to begin testing the waters of the space in the world that was made for me and the space in the world where my creativity is best going to thrive. So here we are, episode 32. We've had a hiatus through January 2022, another unexpected hiatus through March of 2022. And can I say that now I can shake it off and we can go back to our regularly scheduled programming? I, I don't know. I don't know if we will. I hope to. I really hope to be at a place where in 2023, there's another 30 episodes in the Medium Lady Talks archives. And I do feel like because I've taken the distance and time to heal, heal from being physically sick and heal from being really mentally low and mentally unwell in terms of my anxiety and a bit of depression really threw me for a curveball as the winter was kind of coming to its, uh, its end, but after very long, dark days, that taking the space to heal has allowed me to also gain the headspace required to find myself, find my creative self. Yeah, so that's a little bit of preamble about why the episodes have not been showing up in your feed and why I've just been trying to not create under duress. So this episode of books that I read in winter of 2022 will really speak to everything I read between January 1st and March 31st of 2022. Today is April 9th, and I have been feeling like I should have gotten this episode out and published on April 1st, but I really was still not quite with my footing at that time. And I thought, you know what, we're just going to wait. We're going to wait until it feels like the right time to record. And that will be fine. And it is. And here we are. And that being said, it has been 
a very long time since I have recorded, and I do feel out of practice. I do feel a little bit shy. I do feel like uh, this is uncomfortable, which, you know, is funny because I've made 31 other episodes, and you'd think that once you figure it out, you figured it out, but I'm just sharing that for full transparency that uh, even though I've done this for a year, I still feel very new at it. I still feel like I haven't quite hit complete clarity on who I am as a creator, but maybe I never will. I mean, honestly, that's also very possible. So with that being said, I'm going to stop waxing poetic and I'm going to jump into the books that I read in winter of 2022. The first book I'm going to describe is a book that I bought myself, and this book is called My Reading Life. It is a book journal created by Anne Bogle. Anne Bogle is another podcaster. She um, hosts the podcast called What Should I Read Next? And I'm not an active listener of that podcast, but I do really like the idea of having a book journal. So when 2022 started, I really started my journal, and this book journal by Anne Bogle, it makes for a great gift for any reader that you might have in your life. It is small and compact, it is attractive, and it has a hundred slots for you to record um, what you've been reading, but it also has things like book lists by genre, it encourages uh, seasonal reading, it adds tips on how to start a book club. It supports you for getting out of a reading rut. And there's a lot of really lovely writing by Anne Bogle in this book that also kind of make it a little bit more than a journal. And so that book, I would, <laughs> I would really suggest this as, as a gift for any reader that you have in your life. I'm not going to put it in my categories of books, but it is, and I haven't included it in the numbers of books that I've read this winter, but it is a book and I am using it to track my reading life. And it is called My Reading Life by Ann Vogel. It is a book journal. So typically when I've done these book reviews, I, I split my books into probably pass, know yourself, and medium lady must reads. And I'm going to try to do that. But again, because I've tracked my books through this book journal, it's a different organizational layout. And it gives me also a little bit of a different way of thinking about things because cognitively, it's kind of just giving me a different way to see what I've read. So bear with me, I'm going to kind of navigate and walk through um, as I sort of talk through the similar format that you may be used to in previous book episodes. If you want to hear about everything I read last year, there are four book episodes from last year, winter, spring, summer, and fall. And those are all in the Medium Lady Talks archives. And yeah, I'm excited to kick off another year of reading. I think I've been reading a lot more. And that's partly because of how I'm choosing to spend my time. And partly because of the ways my health and mental health have just needed rest and recovery. And one of the biggest things I found is turning to books instead of turning to my phone has been really important and really comforting and really fun, to be honest with you. And sometimes when you're not feeling well, you, you need to find things that are fun so that you can heal, honestly, and, and, and find ways to think about other things other than the circumstances that you're finding yourself in. So between... January and March, I read 15 books. 
And I'm going to start with the probably past books. And there actually weren't too many of those books. Uh, I've read a lot of fiction. I'm just trying to see here what I, how I would tally this up. Of those 15 books, I think only one of them was nonfiction. Oh, wait, two, three. Okay, so let's say we had three nonfiction and 12 fiction. And a lot of these books were four or five star reads for me. What I'll do is I'll start with Probably Pass, and I think there's only two books that meet my Probably Pass uh, recommendations, and most of the rest will fall in the Know Yourself category. And the last uh, end of the episode, I'll talk about my, I guess, my top two books of this reading uh, season. So the first Probably Pass book is going to be a book called Albatross. This is by Terry Fallis. It's fiction. I would describe this book as part rom-com, part, you know, uh, sports fairy tale, and, you know, generally a book that was kind of a way to pass the time, but sort of stumbled upon. I was sort of like, oh, sure, I'll read that next. I really kind of had a uh, very little, like, it wasn't on my TBR. A group of friends on a group chat were talking about books, and my friend said, oh, I found this book on my library by audiobook and I found it by audiobook on my library and I thought oh what the heck I'll just pop this in my earbuds and I'll I'll do an audiobook. Albatross by Terry Fallis is the only audiobook that I read in this uh, series in this season and that's partly just I think where my life is right now. I'm commuting by train so I'm reading a lot of physical books from the library and I'm also really enjoying um, reading on my phone, actually. Reading on my phone as an opportunity to avoid scrolling social media. So Albatross by Terry Fallis. And here, let me just pull up the Goodreads um, summary, as I love to do. Terry Fallis is a Canadian author. He's kind of a funny author, I guess. Like his books, I would call like comedic novels. And generally, they all kind of follow a very specific formula, which is about a young man at a certain pivot in his life, and that young man finding an older mentor by an unusual series of events. And, and this albatross follows exactly the same pattern of previous Terry Fallis books. He is funny. The books are very smart. And let me tell you a little bit of a synopsis of the book. So Adam Coriel is your average high school student. Well, except for that obsession with fountain pens, when his life changes forever. Based on a study by a quirky Swedish professor that claims every human being, regardless of athletic inclination, has a body that is suited to excel in at least one sport, it turns out that Adam is good, very good in fact, at golf. Even though he never picked up a golf club, almost instantly, and with his coach, hard-nosed Bobby Davenport by his side, Adam and his newfound talent skyrocket to a prodigy-level stardom that includes tournament titles, sponsorship deals, and throngs of fans following his every move. But here's the catch. Adam doesn't really like golf, and as a life he once knew slips away, he can't help but wonder if all this success and fame are worth it. So that's the summary of the book, and again, I think there's a couple of things that made this a probably pass for me. The first is that I did listen to it by audiobook, and sometimes when your author has a very distinct narrative style, you really need a perfect narrator. And to my mind, 
the narrator did not quite nail the cadence of comedy that Terry Fallis writes in. And, and the narrator also was kind of just not my style. I did at times kind of relax into the book, but I never really was hooked. The main character, he doesn't get enough drive to do what everyone wants him to do. They want him to go- play golf. They want him to win. And even though he never really has good motivation, he keeps going. He keeps playing golf. And it made the book feel really privileged overall that this young man has no reason to become a golf star, but he does. And he kind of resents it the whole way through. But but there's at no point, you know, anyone kind of saying like, you really don't have to do this. There's no reason to do it. And I think that if Terry Fallis had given him a little bit more of a backstory, a little bit more to help us understand why this young man might be motivated to do this thing that he doesn't want to do beyond the fame and beyond the money, you know, it really makes the book actually quite tone deaf from a position of privilege because here's this young, white, upper-class young man. He lives in a very prominent part of Toronto. He, you know, is an only child. His parents are very well off. He doesn't really appear to have any reason to become famous through the game of golf. And that privilege actually just becomes more and more pronounced as I read the book. Uh, The other thing is this book doesn't really appear to have any BIPOC characters at all. Um, And as I pointed out, that privilege of this young white male um, standing out at me that kind of stood out more and more. And and of course, I, I've been trying to make more conscious choices about books that center voices that are different from my own background or a different point of view than the prevailing narrative. And I think that uh, that those choices have kind of given me a broader point of view and, and opened my eyes in a way that I probably wouldn't have seen this book having those flaws even a couple of years ago. That being said, I actually really like Terry Fallis as a writer, and I would definitely recommend that if you're looking for something a little bit different in the, you know, sort of comedic fiction point of view that you pick up his books, but I would recommend that you probably pass on Albatross and uh, pick up something else from his his amazing uh, repertoire of books. Okay, the second probably pass book for me is a children's book, and... In my December episode on books, I talked about a book called Wilder Lore, The Accidental Apprentice by Amanda Foody. And this is the second book to that first book, which I think I raved about. Um, The second book is called The Weeping Tide. Uh, This book is children's fiction. It's fantasy, magic, adventure. It's the second in the series. I found this book through the Currently Reading podcast. Actually, I didn't find this book. I found the um, accidental apprentice through that podcast, I knew that the second book was coming out. And so I put a hold on it on my library um, so that I could get it once it was released. And and I got it right away holds. And I was the first person to read that library copy, which is always a great experience. But honestly, this book, the kids, there's, there's something missing from the way Amanda Foodie describes relationships between children and adults. The kids really seem to be expected to do quite a lot with very little information given to them. And there is very little adult guidance in this book. Uh, And because of that, the kids make a lot of unusual assumptions, um, but they're also kind of expected to behave in a way that doesn't 
match up to their age. So the characters are 11 and 12. Uh, I don't think any kids reading this book would notice that. Uh, I'm probably noticing that because I am a grown up. But overall, I just didn't enjoy this book as much as the first book. Um, but I probably will keep reading the series. And, and that is because what Amanda Foodie has done really well is the world building of the wilder lore world and the ways in which she describes animals and plants and nature is just really awesome. This is like Harry Potter for flora and fauna. There's, uh, there's a store in this book called the planty shanty and it's full of things like that. Things that just like make you smile. And, and it does really do a lot of world building that is adjacent to Harry Potter. You know, there's special drinks and special food and funny plants and funny animals and an underlying also sense of kind of a mythic, you know, hero's journey that this character will be on through the following, the books that will follow this one. So I, I will follow the series with great interest, but the second book, The Weeping Tide by Amanda Foody, I, I just didn't really care for it. And I would recommend that you probably pass. But that being said, the first book, The um, Accidental Apprentice, was great, was really quite good. And, and I actually, maybe I'm having a bit of a hard time distinguishing the difference between the two, except maybe the novelty of the first book. The novelty wore off just a little bit in the second book. Oh, and I said all of that, but I gave no synopsis whatsoever. So as I said before, I am uh, out of practice with podcasting and with the organization that it takes to record a book episode. So the summary um, for this second book is that Barclay, that's the main character, and his friends are saving an island city from the legendary beast of the sea as the second book in the Wilder Lore series. Something is wrong in the sea. Uh, the Weeping Tide, which is a carnivorous algae bloom, is eating up all the fish. Beasts are terrorizing the nearby elsewheres, and Lochmordra, the legendary beast, is rising at random and swallowing ships whole and destroying islands. Barclay's teacher, the famous guardian keeper Runa Razgar, has been summoned to investigate, and as her apprentice, Barclay gets to join in too. And then, you know, hijinks ensue. So what I'm going to do is when I usually read a book, a probably past book, I uh, I like to go in and see the dissenting opinions. I like to go in and see who disagreed with me. While there are not a lot of ratings for The Weeping Tide, it is a newer book. It does still rank at 4.39 on Goodreads. And there's 195 people who have rated it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a five-star review of The Weeping Tide so that we can hear from somebody who disagreed with me. And I think that's important for two reasons. The first is that I need to know what I like to read. And these episodes give a description of the boundaries of what I like and what I don't like, or the quadrants of content that really kind of tickle my fancy. But that's not everybody. And you might not be uh, aligned with the quadrants that I am aligned with. And so by reading this, sometimes I hope that I can, um, you know, share more a different point of view about the books. And, and the other thing is that um, I also kind of find it fun. It, it gives me broader insight into the book beyond just saying, yeah, read it, didn't like it, probably passed. But then someone says, oh, but did you think about this? And maybe I hadn't thought about it. So it also keeps me from making, you know, a snap judgment about this. Okay, so let's see. Here's a review by Robin. And Robin has given this book five stars. 
And here's what Robin says. The world of Wilderlands is a pretty wild place teeming with beasts that carry lore that you or I would call magic in greater or lesser concentration. Some of them can bond with humans who become lore keepers and can learn to use specific powers that come with their type of lore. As the Wilderlands themselves, they include six regions around the world, the woods, the sea, the desert, the mountains, the jungle, and the tundra, each with its own eco community of lore keepers and its own beastly ecosystem. So that's actually, thank you, Robin. That does a great job of really summarizing the sort of world building that Amanda Foodie is doing there in terms of the worlds, the ecosystems, the, the animals, and it's really wonderful reading in that way. Let's see what Amanda thinks about the book. She has said, the second Wilder Lore book coming in after The Accidental Apprentice continues down a similar current of fun, if perhaps a more watery one, haha, <laughs> because this book takes place around the sea and the last book took place around the woods. The kids get up to lots of high-spirited rule-breaking and, more or less, friendly competition. Everyone has a story that leaves them issues to deal with, especially the adults. The mystery is alive with red herrings, deception, betrayal, opportunities for the apprentices to test, and in most cases, prove their friendship. It's a scenic voyage for the imagination, with lots of quirks, beauty spots, and things for both the mind and heart to dwell on. If nothing else tells you what I think of this series, I'll have you know that after reading book one, I looked out for book two and bought it on the first opportunity. Also, I described the concept of the series to my dad, and he promptly ordered me to bring him the first book the next time I see him. Since there are six Wilderlands, I'm guessing and hoping there will ultimately be at least six books in the series. Don't keep us waiting, foodie. <laughs> see, that's great. And you know what, actually? I can't dispute anything that Robin says in this review. Um, everyone does have a story that leaves them issues to deal with. The kids are particularly angsty. There's a lot they don't say to each other. They just kind of treat each other poorly through most of the book. And then there are some things that actually get resolved later on. One of the things that I didn't mention that is really great about this book is it really approaches diversity in a way that's subtle, but, but purposeful. So the main character Barclay is a young boy and he is white, but the second main character is a character named Viola, I think is her name. And she is a black character and her dad is sort of the, like, I want to call him the Dumbledore, but I think he's more important than Dumbledore of the world of the Wilderlands. And there's another character in this book very subtly who is an amputee and has a device on her leg that helps her run and swim and is a part of her magic. And and there's little things like that sort of sprinkled throughout the book that I think is just refreshing and, and different and noticeable, but also um, makes purposeful point of including characters that may have otherwise been very underrepresented, especially in this kind of young adult fiction. Okay, that's my second probably past book. That was The Weeping Tide by uh, Amanda Foodie. Okay, the next series of books are going to be the Know Yourself, the Know Yourself books. I'm going to kind of try to run through these pretty quickly. <laughs> We're a half an hour into this episode, and I've only talked about two books, but that is just often the way that it goes. The next book I'm going to talk about is Black Girls Must Be Magic by Jane Allen. This is also a sequel. It's the follow-up from the first book, which is Black Girls Must Die Exhausted. You may have caught my interview with the author Jane Allen when the first book was released back in the fall. And if you haven't, I would love it if you take a look at that episode. It's a great episode. 
Jane is such a, you know, wonderful person to interview and spend time with. She's a really thoughtful and purposeful author. It was really great to get back into this world and the cast of characters that Jane has created for the Black Girls Must series. But there was uh, something about this book that was missing a bit from this as the sequel. Um, some of the book felt rushed. It's shorter than the first book by probably a good hundred pages. And the end was very surprisingly abrupt. The synopsis of this book sort of picks up where the last book left off, maybe uh, a few months down the road. And the character of Tabitha is pregnant, which is, you know, alluded to at the end of the first book. And because she's pregnant, the book follows her through her pregnancy until the time when she delivers, but it ends very abruptly at her delivery. And I, I, that's not really any spoilers. The book sort of leads you to through her pregnancy. Some of the themes of this book, you know, were not given the same breathing room as they had in the first book. And part of me can't help but feel as though that's because of the, you know, 100 pages or so that I really felt like were missing. There's also only one new character in this book, which I thought was interesting because there's a very significant character who passes away in the first book, and that character leaves a big hole in the second book. And while that's definitely purposeful by Jane Allen, again, there's not a lot of breathing room for grief or reflection as much as there was in the first book. And one of the things I loved about the character of Tabitha was that she's really doing a lot of internal work through the book. She's really working through a lot of issues as a Black woman, but the writing also gives you tremendous insight into the effort and experience of all of that. Rather than it being something that we see as outsiders looking in, it does feel like you're invited into those issues as a reader. And, and I didn't feel as much of that with the second book. Jane Allen self-published her first book, and the second book is a part of a book series deal with HarperCollins. And I don't want to be overly critical because I actually know nothing about this process, and I understand nothing about how that might influence or change her editors or the publisher's point of view on how the books need to be written. But I did, I did feel a marked difference between the first book and the second book. That being said, there's still a lot of really great stuff happening in this book. The characters, I think, are really Jane's strong suit. She really does a tremendous job of bringing her characters to life. I can imagine them in my mind. I can probably cast them in my mind. And I love that. I really enjoyed that. And the characters are really near and dear to me. Um, she spends more time on friendship in this book, which was really enjoyable. And um, I think overall, I will really look forward to reading the third book in the series. That's Black Girls Must Be Magic by Jane Allen. The next Know Yourself book is a book called One Last Stop. This book is by Casey McQuiston. It is an LGBTQ rom-com. The themes of this book are time travel, you know, fairy tale, family, the LGBT community. This book was really fun, and I would probably make this a medium lady must read, except I think you have to know yourself. It is technically young adult fiction, although I would say it's like uh, mid to young adult fiction, definitely older young adults, but this book was just fun. It was just pure, pure fun. I read this book as I was really coming out of a 
you know, what had felt like a really profoundly low mental health period for me. And this book was just, you know, pure enjoyment, pure fun, really full of love. This book is full of love. The synopsis of this book is as follows. For cynical 23-year-old August, moving to New York City is supposed to prove her right, that things like magic and cinematic love stories don't exist, and the only smart way to go through life is alone. She can't imagine how waiting tables at a 24-hour pancake diner and moving in with too many weird roommates could possibly change that. And there's certainly no chance of her subway commute being anything more than a daily trudge through boredom and electrical failures. But then, there's this gorgeous girl on the train, Jane. Dazzling, charming, mysterious, impossible Jane. Jane, with her rough edges and swoopy hair and soft smile, showing up in a leather jacket to save August's day when she needed it the most. August's subway crush becomes the best part of her day, but pretty soon, she discovers there's one big problem. Jane doesn't just look like an old-school punk rocker. She literally displaced in time from the 1970s, and August is going to have to use everything she tried to leave in her own past to help her. Maybe it's time to start believing in some things after all. I have to say that this book was really wonderful. It, it kind of feels like family. It's long and meandering with a really purposeful backstory to the main character and side plots that you can kind of get lost in. Ultimately, I think if you love dialogue and romance and characters, this book is pretty much perfect, but you do have to know yourself. This book deals with, you know, a really true love story. It's, it's so real. It's very genuine. The sights, the smells, the sounds, the cast of characters all felt, you know, just really true and authentic. I think Anyone who likes romance and is looking to read books with non-traditional characters, you are going to really enjoy this book. But I think if you generally don't like romance, or if you generally prefer to read books that are less commercial, more literary, then this book is not for you. Um, but that being said, I know that Casey McQuiston has written another book. I think it's called Red, White, and Royal Blue. I haven't read that. And after reading One Last Stop, I would definitely be interested in picking it up. That is One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. Okay, my next book is called Find Your Unicorn Space by Eve Rodsky. Eve Rodsky is a sort of parenting and domestic balance expert. She, she wrote the book called, I think it's called Fair Play. Yeah which is about, you know, domestic balance and, uh, and, you know, finding the sort of modern approach to um, splitting domestic duties, I guess. Find Your Unicorn Space, the, the subtitle is Reclaim Your Creative Life in a Too Busy World. I read this book, and I think I found this book because my best friend had bought it and posted it on Instagram. And I really liked the cover. And so I just put a hold on my library. I really knew very little, if anything, about this book at all until it showed up. And then I started to read it. The book is in three parts or four parts, I think. The first part I read and I was kind of hooked from the beginning. I really loved Eve Rodsky's point of view and she made me feel, you know, um, like my work on Medium Lady and my work on Medium Lady Talks was actually really adjacent to her point of view. And then that made me feel a bit insecure. I was sort of like, oh, no, here's Eve Rodsky. And she's actually 
developed expertise that is far superior to my own expertise and my own, you know, my own product that I'm claiming out here um, on Medium Lady. But then as the book moves on, it really focuses back on that thesis of domestic balance, talks a lot about permission, shame and guilt and time. She talks about, you know, using your voice. Some of the book feels really high effort. But for a summary, you know, this book is really about being an inspirational guide for setting personal goals. It's an inspirational guide for rediscovering your interests, especially rediscovering your interests after a pandemic, cultivating creativity, and what she calls reclaiming your unicorn space. Now, the use of that phrase unicorn space starts to kind of stick with me through part of the book. And I think that's because unicorns are rare. They're sort of seen as a bit magical, seen as elusive. And I think it was a misnomer on Eve Rodsky's part, because what she's really trying to do is to get as many people involved in unicorn space as possible. But every time I think about the word unicorns, I think, well, unicorns are for some people, but not for everyone. And that's not what Eve Rodsky is trying to say in her book. She's really trying to promote that this is the kind of thing that everyone deserves and everyone needs, and that actually the world will be a better place when everybody gets it. So I guess I, and she starts to call, you know, <laughs> she starts to call people she's studying unis and unicorn. And I just, it started to feel a little bit saccharine. And once it, it got to that point, it started to feel high effort. And once it started to feel high effort, it started to feel unattainable. So, you know, Eve Rodsky talks about, you know, when your domestic workload becomes more balanced, sometimes people still feel that there are things missing in their lives. Unless you purposefully create and prioritize time for activities that fill your bucket and unleash your creativity. And that's what she calls the time. Time spent on those activities is what she calls unicorn space. And I actually feel like this is something that I've also been exploring through Medium Lady in when I do my monthly experiments and I talk about the ways in which I'm going to spend my free time through the month. And I do that upfront at the beginning of the month. Eve Rodsky is talking about this a little bit more from a project-based point of view, is that like creativity and making your way from point A to point B with a goal is really important. Completion is something that she talks about quite a lot. She's a great writer. The book is easy to read. I, I blitzed right through it. She has this really great mix of kind of research. She seeks people out for individual interviews. She gives kind of how-to advice, and there's some bullet points in, the, in there too. I think that, you know, if you're looking for a place to get permission, to find time, to have difficult conversations with your partner about making space for yourself as the pandemic changes and as you might be finding more time for yourself as things open up, I think that you will enjoy this book. But if you're not the kind of person who really likes personal development, if uh, I don't want to call this a girl boss book. But it's not not a girl, it's girl boss boss adjacent. <laughs> well, let's say that. This book is girl boss adjacent. And uh, I think if you find that kind of writing off-putting, you have to really know yourself. Overall, you know, I think this book does have something to offer. It does, doesn't offer everything. It offers one thing and one point of view and, and one way to kind of like be encouraged. That's Find Your Unicorn Space by Eve Rodsky.
Okay, my next uh, Know Yourself book is another young adult fiction. I also, I really love this book too. But again, you do have to know yourself. And the thing you have to know about yourself is if you like reading about teenage girls. If you don't like reading about teenage girls, don't even bother picking up this book. But honestly, this book was like The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants times a hundred. It was, it's better than the Sisterhood of Traveling Pants, but, but that's like, you know, the, the first thing that kind of pops in my head. Um, that's Take Me Home Tonight by Morgan Matson. I found this book through the Globe and Mail Best Books of 2021, and I've talked a little bit off and on about how much I enjoy pulling out that list every year and highlighting the books that I really want to read from that list. So Take Me Home Tonight is a book that I found on this past year's Globe and Mail list. The Globe and Mail is a Canadian national newspaper. This this was a weekend read. I, I read this book cover to cover in for a full weekend. It was the perfect kind of book that had me grabbing my book instead of my phone. Really great balance of plot, people, and place. And so let's get into a bit of a synopsis of this book. So Take Me Home Tonight by Morgan Matson. The Goodreads synopsis of this book calls it Ferris Bueller's Day Off meets Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist in this romp through the city that never sleeps from the New York Times bestselling author of Since You've Been Gone, Morgan Matson. Two girls, one night, zero phones, Kat and Stevie, best friends, theater kids, polar opposites, have snuck away from the suburbs to spend a night in New York City. They have it all planned out. They'll see a play, eat at the city's hottest restaurant, and have the best night ever. What could go wrong? Well, kind of a lot. They're barely off the train before they're dealing with destroyed phones, family drama, and unexpected Pomeranians. Over the next few hours, they'll have to grapple with old flames, terrible theater, and unhelpful cab drivers. But they're also cute boys to kiss, parties to crash, dry cleaning to deliver, don't ask, and the world's best museum to explore. And that's kind of, you know, how it goes on from there. <laughs> like I said... I loved this book. This book was the equivalent of like watching Emily in Paris. I, I just like, I loved it. I think again, if you like teenage girls, if you like New York City, if you like a caper that takes place in one night, if you like multiple narrators, the book does toggle between Kat and Stevie's point of view. And that makes the book really fun. I love the references this book makes to learning about yourself as you're reflected by your friends. And it really made me think a lot about the things that my friends have taught me about myself over the years. I've also had the privilege of having had really long, long standing friendships with some women in my life who have known me for decades. And the things that they have taught me and the ways in which they have helped me love myself by reflecting myself back to me. You know, there's other themes in this book about stepping outside of your comfort zone, you know, how growth really comes from trying new things, especially when you're at a, t a teenager and especially when you're really experiencing life transitions, you know, that failing and succeeding are sort of always two sides of the same coin. There is one kind of thing that still sticks with me, which is an unresolved and somewhat sinister adult relationship. And then there's <laughs> just at the very end of the book, uh, if you read it, you'll know what I mean. I just kind of felt like that was a little bit uncomfortable and unresolved. But sometimes things are like that. So that could have been a purposeful choice on Morgan Matson's part. And then there's a slight third storyline. So there's Kat and Stevie, their best friends, and then they have another friend named Terry. 
And that I could relate to too, because there's often, you know, there was often like a trio of friends when I was growing up. It was, you know, um, th- the three, a threesome. And Terry has her own storyline that in the context of everything I said is not even remotely ad- adjacent to, I'm laughing because it's very, it's a very funny side storyline, but in the interest of spoilers, I really don't want to explain it. But Terry has her own experience through this one night. And so I guess it has three narrators because every now and then you dip into Terry. But every time you dip into Terry, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about Terry. Oh, my gosh, what's happening to her? Her storyline's a little ludicrous, but also fun. I'm going to just I'm going to just put something wild out there is I actually think Morgan Matson should write a novella about the Terry storyline, because there's some things left out of there that are just wild it would be a really fun companion piece to this book. I can't imagine why she would ever do that. But you know, it is what it is. And I'm putting it out there. If you like young adult fiction, if you like Gilmore Girls, if you like books about friendship or books with more than one narrator coming of age, if you like stories about New York City, you will love this book. It's Take Me Home Tonight by Morgan Matson. All right, the next Know Yourself book is a book called cultish. This is a book by Amanda Montel. This is one of the very few nonfiction books that I read in the winter of 2022. Cultish got a lot of 2021 buzz. It was a lot of best of lists. I enjoyed this book, you know, uh, let's get into the synopsis. Cultish um, analyzes the social science of cult influence, how cultish groups from Jonestown and Scientology to SoulCycle and social media gurus Use language of the ultimate form of power. What makes cults so intriguing and frightening? What makes them powerful? The reasons why so many of us binge Manson documentaries by the dozen and fall down rabbit holes researching suburban moms gone QAnon is because we're looking for a satisfying explanation for what causes people to join, and more importantly, stay in extreme groups. We secretly want to know, could it happen to me? This book you know, it started off a bit grim for me. She starts with some of the older history of cults, um, especially Jonestown. Jonestown is the cult that inspired the phrase, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. It does pick up speed. While I would say, you know, the first part of the book is quite sad, some of the descriptions uh, and retelling of, you know, the sort of well-known historical cults of the 60s and 70s. It does pick up speed and it does really kind of gain momentum as she builds her thesis in the use of language to influence. There were some times when I felt like Amanda Montel's style was a bit too casual for the subject matter, but that's a personal preference of mine. The book is very easy to read. It's very well researched. It is very interesting. Both Nick and I read this book. Honestly, I think you kind of have to know yourself. If if you like nonfiction, and if you like nonfiction, and if you like cults, I guess, I would definitely recommend it. I think that you have to know yourself. This book is not going to be for everybody. One of the very interesting things about this book is its point of view. Amanda Montel's father was in a cult in his early to late adolescence, and he has shared with her some parts of his experience, and those that point of view and her experience of being raised by a dad who had that experience also kind of layers into it. And and that I thought was really well done, really nuanced storytelling for her to be sort of outside but connected to the subject matter. That's Cultish by Amanda Montel. Okay, another um, Know Yourself book is going to be 
oh, this book, actually. I'm wondering, actually, if this book should have been in my probably pass. But here, it's here. We're here now. We'll call it a Know Yourself book. And that is Who is Maud Dixon by Amanda Andrews. Oh my gosh, who is Maud Dixon? So it seems like this was on everyone's best of the year list for 2021. It was like endlessly everywhere. I could not get away from this book. Let's get into the summary first. Okay, so who is Maud Dixon? Here's the summary. Florence Darrow is a small town striver who believes that she's destined to become a celebrated writer. When she stumbles into the opportunity to become the assistant to Maud Dixon, a celebrated but anonymous novelist, she believes that the universe is finally providing her big chance. The arrangement feels idyllic. Helen can be prickly, but she's full of pointed wisdom on both writing and living. She even invites Florence along a research trip to Morocco, where her new novel is set. Florence has never been out of the country before. Maybe, she imagines, she'll finally have something exciting to write about. But when Florence wakes up in the hospital after a terrible car crash and Helen is dead, she begins to imagine what it might be like to upgrade into not only Helen's life, but also that of Helen's best-selling pseudonym, Maud Dixon. So, I'm going to laugh. I thought I had heard someone say that this book had a, an unreliable narrator. And that is one of the main things that pulled me into this book, because unreliable narrators are rare. The The last book I can think of where I read a book with an unreliable narrator was Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn. And I hope that's not a spoiler. If you haven't read Gone Girl, uh, go ahead and read it, but you're about a decade behind. I, I had thought I had heard somebody say that, but... Uh, uh, I don't really don't want to give spoilers about this book. This book is a kind of like part literary fiction, part mystery thriller, and it's mixed together poorly, in my opinion. I didn't find the the, the narrator unreliable. I, I can't say that I made my way through the book finding out that actually the, the narrator was unreliable. The story felt like it, I could see what was coming a mile away, even without the synopsis that I just read to you. I still really like the writing. I, I like the characters, even though I didn't love the plot. There's some interesting dynamics for Florence in that there's very few characters in this book. One of the characters is Florence's mother. You know, her her mother kind of has some really biting scenes. And Alexander Andrews does a really great job of writing this character, really makes her come to life very, very succinctly in a very economical way of writing that is with very few scenes paints a picture of a character that's really kind of gets under your skin almost immediately. With that being said, the book opens a certain way, it hits the middle at a specific way, it ends at a specific way. I felt like the pacing, the timing, all of it felt really predictable. I I don't know if that's partly because, you know, I'd heard so much about this book before I read it. But yeah, I mean, listen, it, it is what it is. <laughs> I think you have to know yourself. If you like literary fiction, but you're looking for a plot that moves in a bit a bit of a faster pace, you probably would like this. It's not often that literary fiction and mystery thriller genres are blended together. That's kind of unusual. And kudos to Alexandra Andrews, because I think this is her first book. And to experiment with genre is a really cool thing to do with your first book. People loved and raved about this book. I thought it, I enjoyed it. You know, I could see it having a strong craft. I could see it uh, being well done for what it is. But my enjoyment of it overall was was mediocre at best. 
And that is Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. I, I'm calling it a Know Yourself book because, again, that literary fiction piece, I would not say that this book, you know, is bad or that it's it's not really suffering any plot holes or any poorly written characters. It's not suffering from a lack of craft. It's just sort of that the mystery thriller part of it all neither thrilled me nor kept me guessing about the mystery. And so that left me wanting more and feeling a little bit disappointed. Okay, the next Know Yourself book is a book called The Twelve Dates of Christmas by Jenny Bayliss. This is a British rom-com. takes place during Christmas, the themes of dating, art, small town life. Let's read a synopsis quickly. I don't want to spend too much time on this book because it is um, takes place during Christmas. I did read it in the middle of January, and in part that's just because that's when it came available at my library. Okay, so here's the synopsis. Tis the season for finding romance in this hilarious and uplifting holiday read. When it comes to relationships, 34-year-old Kate Turner is ready to say, bah humbug. The sleepy town of Blexford, England isn't exactly brimming with prospects. And anyway, Kate's found fulfillment in her career as a designer and in her delicious side job baking for her old friend Matt's neighborhood cafe. But then her best friend signs her up for a dating agency that promises to help singles find love before the holidays. 23 days until Christmas? 12 dates with 12 different men. The odds must finally be in her favor, right? Yet, with each new date more disastrous than the one before, and the whole town keeping tabs on her misadventures, Kate must remind herself that sometimes love, like mistletoe, shows up where it's been least expected. And maybe it's been right under her nose all along. <laughs> so, you know, you have to know yourself if, if you like, you know, romantic comedies, and if you like books that are holiday themed if you like hallmark movies if you like hallmark movies that is probably the best descriptor you will like this book i do like hallmark movies typically i like hallmark movies before christmas but that being said i read this book over a weekend i, w I had been sick um early in the new year just with a cold I, I read this book actually as a way to build momentum in my reading life uh, after being sick i had um, missed reading. I had not had the energy to read. And I picked up this book. It got me right back into reading. It was the perfect thing to kickstart my reading habit. And I loved it. It was kind of like, again, like I had said before, that book, Take Me Home Tonight. It was sort of like binging a really great series like Emily in Paris, except a book. You know, I guess if it's a book, it feels sort of better for me than, than binging Netflix. I was really invested in the characters. I was invested in their habits and relationships. I loved the profession of Kate, the heroine. She had this really cool job that she that the author spends a bit of time um, exploring that and, and gives the reader a sense of why Kate finds her job so fulfilling. It ended too quickly for me. And I do wish there had been a little bit more romantic buildup to the end. Um, but overall, I thought it was great. I could really picture these characters. I could picture the small village. I love the Britishness of it all. And uh, Jenny Bayliss had written another book called A Season of Second Chances. And I read that book just as March ended. I think I finished it April 1st. And so that will be in my spring reviews. But that book I enjoyed actually even more than the 12 Dates of Christmas. Okay, I think I have two more books in the Know Yourself category, and then we'll move on to Medium Lady Must Reads. One of the last books is The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimeline. This is a young adult, uh, near future sort of dystopian novel. The Marrow Thieves is an older book. 
and I've actually never read it, but many people will know this book and many people will have read it. Marrow Thieves takes place in the near future and it tells the story of a world where, you know, when we're ravaged by global warming, um, people have lost the ability to dream and dreamlessness has led to sort of widespread madness and, and mental health breakdown. The only people who still can dream are North American indigenous peoples, and it is considered that their marrow holds the cure for the rest of the world. But extracting marrow um, and extracting, you know, the ability to dream is a sort of government or uh, industrial initiative to basically harvest indigenous people f for this purpose and sort of uh, in that context, many indigenous peoples are um, are, are in, f in flight. They're fleeing. They're hiding. They're undercover, and they're running from their homes. The book tells the story of a 15-year-old and his companions who struggle for survival and attempt to reunite with um, family members they've been separated from, uh, taking refuge from the recruiters who are seeking them out to bring them back to marrow-stealing factories, basically. That synopsis really doesn't uh, do this book justice. I think that you would really be missing out uh, a lot on the um, indigenous narrative. There's so much in this book about loss of culture, abuse, murder by, you know, white supremacy. Oh gosh, so much in this book. Survival and resilience. It's a really powerful book. It's very painful. I think it is very exacting in its storytelling. And it's a really important book. I'm actually, I'm kind of sad I hadn't read it before today. But that being said, reading it now and reading it today is still really important. If you have not read The Marrow Thieves yet, please go ahead and pick it up. Please go ahead and read it. I do think you have to know yourself. I think you have to know that you're engaging purposefully as a non-Indigenous person, assuming you're a non-Indigenous person, um, engaging in the importance of storytelling about the damage of white supremacy on Indigenous people, you know, with a perspective on the future. Because I think we do a lot of storytelling, we reflect a lot on reconciliation and truth about the past, but there's a really purposeful thing that Sherry Dimeline is doing here by focusing her narrative on the future that is really vitally important. I sobbed at the end of this book, I'm not gonna lie, probably cried through the last three chapters. The grief in this book and the joy in this book is really overwhelming, uh, really gets you caught up very quickly, um, especially the book can be very slow, um, but the end moves at like a blinkingly fast pace and um and I think gets you caught up emotionally. This book is really wonderful, you know, famous for a reason. And uh, I think the only reason I'm saying you have to know yourself is I am actually just assuming most people have already read this book. It does have a follow-up called Hunting by Stars that was released in the fall of 2021, which is interesting because I think this book was first published in yeah, first published in 2017. So to have a follow-up book happening in uh, 2021 is, is really interesting. I'm going to have to look for that. Hunting by the Stars. And oh no, that's the third book. So there's a second book, I think, called Empire of the Wild. Is that related? No, that's not related. That's just another book by Sherry Dimeline. Okay, the second book is called Hunting by Stars, 
released in October. I hadn't heard much about this book, but it has really great ratings, and so I'll be looking forward to go and read that next. Okay, the last Know Yourself book is a book called Pony by R.J. Palacio. R.J. Palacio wrote um, Wonder, the book Wonder. This book is historical fiction. I would not call this book young adult. I would just, I would really just call it historical fiction. Bit of paranormal in the background, the themes of father, son, uh, themes of the Wild West, I guess. Um, interesting themes about science, paranormal, ghosts. I discovered this book also through the Currently Reading podcast. Just a sidebar to say that that book podcast has been one of the most delightful joys of my life. They're their references are vast and deep. There's not much that they won't read or share about. And I just feel like it's the best place to go for breadth and depth of book rep, um, references. Some book podcasts sort of stick to a specific kind of genre or specific kind of comfort zone. And the currently reading podcast never does that for me. Uh, this is Pony by RJ Palacio. Let's read a bit of a summary. Pony is a story about a boy on a quest to rescue his father, with only a ghost as his companion and a mysterious pony as his guide. Twelve-year-old Silas is awoken in the dead of night by three menacing horsemen who take his father away. Silas is left shaken, scared, and alone, except for the presence of his companion, Mittenwool, who happens to be a ghost. When a pony shows up at his door, Silas makes the courageous decision to leave his home and embark on a perilous journey to find his father. Along the way, he will face his fears to unlock the secrets of the past and explore the unfathomable mysteries of the world around him. I think you have to know yourself in that this book is a it's very specific kind of storytelling. And, you know, I, uh, I was sick when I started this book, which means, you know, I kind of languished through the first third or so just because I started it, I got sick. I didn't really want to pick up my book very much, but every now and then I'd pick it up and read a bit. And the first third of the book is sort of setting the, st the stage for the plot. Um, once I started feeling better, I really couldn't put it down. The one thing I really struggled about with this book is there's lots of geographical descriptions about the landscape that this character of Silas is traveling through. And I'm not very good at geospatial descriptions. When they talk about like a ridge or a bank of trees or the north and the west or to the left and heading down and the there was a gully and <laughs> I just start to get really confused and my mind will sort of detach from the story at a certain point if I can't imagine the setting, but I'm not very good at reading geographical descriptions and translating those into visual imagery in my mind. And this book is packed with those kinds of descriptions because it is a journey. It's a journey by horseback and there's various things that happen throughout the landscape. The landscape is a huge part of the story. So that was a bit of a sticking point for me, but otherwise the writing of this book is really beautiful. The character of Silas is really compelling and the, the love that this character has for his father is really amazing. The cast of characters is fascinating and there's photographs throughout the book that are so curious and compelling um, to set the stage for the cast of characters. Almost each chapter introduces a new character, 
And there's really interesting photography of those characters to get you in the frame of mind of imagining um, who's part of the story. There are almost no women in this book. The cast of characters is like 90% men. The w- There's no real women that play a real like distinct part in the book. And, um, you know, that being said, don't pass this up. Uh, if you're looking, if you, if you generally read in one specific kind of genre and you're kind of bored of what you've usually been reading and you want to switch it up a bit, Pony by RJ Palacio might be a good, a good palate cleanser or a good, you know, change of pace for you. And, and that's something I would recommend, but you, you have to know yourself. You have to know yourself. And I think this is a very unusual and specific kind of book. And, um, you have to know that when you're jumping in, there's not much like it. I'm trying to think of like, oh, what does it make me think of? And I I'm coming up blank. And as someone who reads quite a bit, I think that says a lot. Okay, that's the last of my Know Yourself recommendations, and we're going to now head into my Medium Lady Must Reads. The first Medium Lady Must Read book is a book called The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow. This book is historic fantasy, deals with themes of sisters, witches, um, suffragettes, you know, feminism and the patriarchy. There are some LGBTQ plus themes in this book, and Honestly, I just love this book so much. It had a little bit of everything for me. There was beautiful writing, fantastic characters, awesome plot. Something I learned about myself through this season of reading in winter of 2022 is that I really like alternate alternative narr- or alternating narrator narrators. I really like alternating narrators. I really like books that have two or more characters telling the story that take turns chapter by chapter to tell the plot, to move the plot forward. I like getting more than one point of view when I'm reading a book. And this book has that. Let's read a bit of a synopsis. In 1983, there's no such thing as witches. There used to be in the wild, dark days before the burnings began. But now witching is nothing but tidy charms and nursery rhymes. If the modern woman wants any measure of power, she must find it at the ballot box. But then, when the Eastwood sisters, James Juniper, Agnes Amaranth, and Beatrice Belladonna join the suffragists of New Salem, they begin to pursue the forgotten words and ways that might turn the women's movement into the witches' movement. Stalked by shadows and sickness, hunted by forces who will not suffer a witch to vote, and perhaps not even to live, the sisters will need to delve into the oldest magics, draw new alliances, and heal the bond between them if they want to survive. There's no such thing as witches." but there will be. So this book, you know, was a gift to me from my in-laws at Christmas time. And, you know, there's so much going on, you know, there, the, the early part of the book sort of talks about this division between witches and suffragettes. And there's a really great line where the suffragette says, like, you have to choose, you have to choose in order to in order to get what we want, we have to give something up. And we can't be both witches and suffragettes. We, we kind of have to make a choice. And I thought that was a really interesting line, um, given that sometimes it feels that way in modern feminism today. Sometimes it does feel like you have to choose, you know, between being uh, a stay-at-home mom or a working mom. You have to choose between you know, bottle fed or breastfed, you have to choose between, you know, having no screens or all screens or, you know, daycare, whatever, you know, it it does kind of feel like there's often these 
these fake lines that are drawn between women and that we do that in order to gain a toehold in society, that we do that in order to uh, find a stronger position within the patriarchy. And I, I thought that was really, really kind of cool writing and a really interesting way to bring that historical point of view into what felt like a very modern, uh, a very um, obvious, you know, felt like Alex Harrow was sort of obviously pointing out like, this is still happening, we're still doing this um, to each other as women. Memory plays a huge part of the book, as do fairy tales and nursery rhymes. The way we sort of retell and, in and intermix stories together uh, was really super captivating and very creative writing. There is a narrative about a baby being born. And, and once the baby's born, I really started to feel the emotional breadth of the book widen or deepen. I felt completely hooked in by my heart to this book. I think that was really important plot uh, cho choosing by the author because, you know, already really connected to the characters, but the addition of the baby can sometimes be where authors can lose you. But, but honestly, it actually just made the book, the stakes feel much more emotional after the baby is born. There are three sisters. They do alternate narration. Sometimes it was hard to follow the development of the character of Juniper until the end. She's very pivotal to the plot. And so that's kind of why I think I desired a little bit more development of her character and her point of view. The story tells uh, the perspective of those three sisters. And sometimes it felt like they got a little bit muddled up, even though I, I do like alternate narrators. Part of me was a tiny bit curious about what this book would have been like if it was just told from one point of view, but honestly, I, I loved it. I, I gave it five stars. If you like historic fantasy, if you like books that center the voices of women, if you like books that deal with, you know, magic, but also a bit of realism, um, if you like stories about family, you will love this book that is called The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow, and it is a must-read from me. Okay, our next must-read book is a book that I am not quite finished yet, but I am willing to put it on this list, and that is called The Wisdom of Your Body by Hilary McBride. This book is not necessarily nonfiction. It's also not necessarily personal development. I think it kind of sits in, I guess, what I would call like mindfulness. It's a mindfulness resource. This book by Hilary McBride is about describing the ways that we get detached from our bodies and the ways that we can reconnect to our bodies as a source of knowledge and as a source of wisdom and as a source of being grounded in the world. The reason I'm calling it a must read is because I think that there's nothing quite like this out there that I have read. And it has been really a good education for me, especially since through the winter of 2020, I really experienced a lot of low moments in my mental health. And having a resource like this was a very gentle and kind and practical way to get reconnected to my body after being sort of in a constant state of fight or flight mentally. Um, here's a bit of a synopsis. So it says on Goodreads, many of us have complicated relationships with our bodies. Maybe you've been made to feel ashamed of your body or like it isn't good enough. Maybe your body is riddled with stress, pain, or the effects of trauma. Maybe you think your body as an accessory to what you really believe you are, your mind. 
Maybe your experiences with racism, sexism, ableism, heterosexism, ageism, or sizeism have made you believe your body isn't the right kind of body. Whatever the reason, many of us don't feel at home in our bodies, but being disconnected from ourselves as bodies means being disconnected from truly living and from the interconnection that weaves us all together. Uh, Hilary McBride is a psychologist and an award-winning researcher, and I think this book, you know, it's really just this compassionate, holistic perspective on getting back into your body, and that's kind of all I can really say about it. Um, this book has stuck with me, and like I said, I am reading it really slowly, but it is still a medium lady must read, and, and that is because I don't think there's anything quite like it out there. And it is teaching me something that I have not yet learned from therapy, from mindfulness, from meditation, from any of the other personal development gurus out there. This is really valuable information that I think everyone needs to have. And that's why I am calling The Wisdom of Your Body a medium lady must read. It's a book I've given to actually a couple of women in my life. And hopefully they see it as being as useful as I have. I really, I don't, I don't know that I could say quite enough about it. Uh, and that's The Wisdom of Your Body by Hillary McBride. I would love to have Hillary McBride on this podcast. I need to maybe uh, figure out a way to put myself out there and see if we can uh, get her on the podcast. I don't know what that would take, honestly. Okay, I have two more books. Two more Medium Lady Must Reads. And the first one is, they're very different. The first one is <laughs> a book that I loved so much that took me way off guard and I can't stop thinking about it. This book is called All's Well. It's by Mona Awad. This is sort of what I'm going to call literary fiction with paranormal. Uh, this was another book on the Globe and Mail Best Books of 2021. I could not put this book down. It is a perfect book to me. The writing is fast-paced in cinematic it's kind of a mix of this black swan meets Shakespeare meets contempt commentary on pain, commentary on the wellness, you know, the wellness space for women. Uh, before I get ahead of myself, let's read a synopsis. A darkly funny novel about a theater professor suffering chronic pain, who in the process of staging a troubled production of Shakespeare's most maligned play, suddenly and miraculously recovers. Miranda Fitch's life is a walking nightmare. The accident that ended her burgeoning acting career left her with excruciating chronic back pain, a failed marriage, and a deepening dependence on painkillers. And now she's on the verge of losing her job as a college theater director. Determined to put on Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well, the play that promised and cost her everything, she faces a mutinous cast hell-bent on staging Macbeth instead. Miranda sees her chance at redemption slip through her fingers, and... Oh, so this is where the, the synopsis is, I think, giving spoilers. So I'm just going to say from there, the, st the story unfolds. But, but Miranda does make a miraculous recovery. And what happens after that is really, really interesting. I think that this novel is sort of subversive. It's a sort of indictment on our, on our, you know, collective, you know, the ways that we believe women, the ways that we don't believe women, the ways that we gaslight women who are in pain. Um, I think the ways we inflict doubt on women, the ways we inflict, you know, the, the ways youth, men, family, friends, these relationships are really just so tenuous and, and 
when you're a woman experiencing trauma or pain or something that can't be physically observed, when you are not well, it does really feel like your relationships are at risk. Your place in society is at risk. Your ability to contribute is at risk. And this book comments on all of that with this edge that is about you as a reader second guessing what's really happening and second guessing whether or not you can really trust Miranda's point of view and you start to do to her what she's what you hoped you never would which is you actually start to doubt her as well it's just like brilliantly written there's another thing about this book that actually made me feel very similar to a book I read last year called Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. And that is one of my favorite books of 2021. Leave the World Behind and All's Well do not deal with the same subject matter, but they do write in the very same edgy, fast-paced, edge-of-your-seat kind of nervous reading you know, I was nervous while reading this book. And while that sounds like a bad feeling, it was actually really exciting and exhilarating. I, I honestly, I could not put this down, book down. I read well late into the night. I forayed reading. I forayed, you know, taking care of my kids just to read through this book. It was just so intense and so exciting and so enjoyable. I love this book. And I would highly recommend that you read it too. That's All's Well by Mona Awad. Okay, my last book, and I'm very sheepish to call this a medium lady must read, but I'm still going to put it out there. The book is called The State of Terror. It's written by Louise Penny, beloved Canadian cozy mystery writer, and Hillary Clinton, former presidential candidate and secretary of state in the US. It's, it's true. Louise Penny and Hillary Clinton wrote a book together. It's a political thriller. It is about female leadership, friendship, you know, nuclear war, terrorism, political instability. I'm going to say, okay, if you haven't heard of this book, I don't know how you've missed it. But if you've heard of this book, and you haven't read it, uh, I will recommend you read it. I, <laughs> it was so fun. Oh my gosh, this book was fun. And fun in a way that was like, way less stressful than the all than all's well because all's well deals with this like shifting reality and i guess state of terror kind of does too but this the plot the plot is predictable and there's there's no uh the, the timeline is reliable I, I love reading this book i actually downloaded it on my phone and i found myself reaching for my phone and opening my library app instead of opening instagram sometimes i will totally admit i will unconsciously open instagram my thumb will just go right to that icon, even if I move it around my phone, my home screen, and open Instagram. And when I was reading State of Terror, my thumb would go to that Libby app and open it right up. I wondered a lot about the inspiration for this story because Hillary Clinton is a co-author and the main character is the Secretary of State for the United States that, you know, you can't help, you just can't help but kind of like wonder how much of like inside baseball is happening um, in the storytelling. Um, but the characters were amazing. There's a really beautiful female friendship between Ellen, the main character, and her best friend, Betsy. And you'll read in the author's notes that those are based on real people. The book is lots of fun. It's actually very funny. There are some genuinely scary parts, which makes the writing all the more excellent. 
you know, I think female heroine protagonists, um, the use of family in really unique ways that you would not normally see in a political thriller, I think all kind of bring this unique female point of view. I don't read a lot of political thrillers, if any. I don't actually, I can't even think of the last political thriller that I that I read. But this one is a good one. And, and it feels different. It feels different than the the James Patterson. Although I think Bill Clinton wrote a book with James Patterson. Anyway, it, it just feels different. It felt good. And I and I really loved reading it. And, and I'm going to call it a medium lady must read. And maybe that's cheesy because I think this seems like the most predictable must read book. But sometimes, you know, things are good for a reason. I'm not going to question it. But what I am going to do is, I didn't read a synopsis, but hopefully, you know, I kind of gave you a bit of a rundown there. Let's see. If we're really dying for a synopsis, that's okay. Well, let's get into it. Novice Secretary of State joined the administration of her rival, a president inaugurated after four years of American leadership that shrank from the world stage. A series of terrorist attacks throws the global order in disarray, and the secretary is tasked with assembling a team to unravel the deadly conspiracy a scheme carefully designed to take advantage of an American government, dangerously out of touch and out of power in the places where it counts most. This high-stakes thriller of international intrigue features behind-the-scenes global drama informed by details only an insider could know. Oh, that's a, that's a very good synopsis. Okay, so that's the book. I loved it, as I said, but I am going to read a one-star review. So this book has... 4.15 reviews on Goodreads, and 43,537 ratings. Okay, let's try to find somebody who ranked this book a one or a, a two stars. Here we go. We found someone. Diane G. I read this book. Was terribly disappointed. I adore books written by Louise Penny and eagerly awaited this book to read the collaboration with Hillary Clinton. Oh, so that's actually, yeah, this book is very different than Louise Penny's Three Pines books. I've read, I think, four of the Three Pines books, four out of 16, maybe. Those are what I would classify as cozy mysteries. Pretty slow, very meandering. This book is not that. So I think that's an interesting point from the reviewer here that that this book, if you like Louise Penny, it's hard to say if you would like this book because it's a very different writing style and point of view. Uh, she says here, the storyline is convoluted, confusing, repetitive, and tortuous. Oh, no, I couldn't disagree more. How many times do I need to read that Ellen Adams is a surprise appointment of Secretary of State by President-elect and read various characters discussing why the president would choose her? I don't remember those scenes. It's kind of part of the beginning of the book, but it drops off right after that. Or hear how she arrived from a meeting straight from her first assignment in South Korea covered in mud. Yeah, this is all like the first chapter. I don't know if Diane read more. Where is the intrigue, the suspense, the mystery? It takes forever for the story to get to the characters who are in danger. And even that becomes confusing. The story seems to be all about Ellen Adams. Yeah! Her habits, her appearance, her friends. The plot is slim and boring. I expected so much more. Dot, dot, dot. The book put me in a state of terror. (laughs) Diane, that's really funny. Oh... Oh, that's funny. And someone commented on this. What a strange review. I don't think you finished the book. <laughs> I agree. I don't think she finished it either. Oh, and a lot of people rate, rate, it, rate it without reading it. Here's another person. Heather, one star. I didn't read this book. Oh, okay. Bodie rated it one. Wouldn't waste my time with this garbage. Wow. Uh, okay, here's another person named Obsidian. Don't be mad at me, but this book was not good. 
It did not help that when we have Armand... Okay, yeah, I'm not going to read spoilers. There's a bit of a spoiler here. The characters were not developed well. I don't... I couldn't... I don't agree at all. The writing was... No, I don't agree with that. Let's see. The flow was awful. The setting of the White House, Florida, other countries was just... Ugh, I don't know. The ending made me sigh. I imagine this means there's another book coming. Yeah, that's true. There is a bit of world building that suggests there would be another book. Oh, so this is interesting. Okay. I get a lot of people are saying Adams is a stand-in for Clinton, but my God, no. Besides the different backstories, it makes zero sense why Williams would have appointed her secretary of state. That's the president. And it's even dumber that she would have taken it, considering her animosity for the guy. That whole plot point never worked for me, and I hated how many times it got brought up. I think that the authors explain that. So she runs against this guy, she loses, and then he makes her secretary of state. And there are some questions through the book as to why he would do that. And you kind of figure it out through the book. And you also figure out, she explains why she takes the job. So I think people sometimes miss these things. And, and if you're not looking for it, you probably would miss it, which maybe is, is a point on the, the writing style. Uh, let's see. Obsidian goes on to say, Adams is kind of a terrible mother. I think that at one point I gave up figuring out what was going on with her children, who I called plot device number two and number three. That's an interesting criticism because she is not a terrible mother, but she is not a perfect mother and she has made a lot of mistakes and she's also not a conventional mother. So I would just challenge Obsidian to say what makes her terrible specifically. I think you have to be more specific and I don't think you would find a lot there. You can't say she's terrible just because she's not Betty Cleaver, June Cleaver, whoever the character is. She's not perfect, but I don't think that makes her a terrible mother. And it, it makes for very interesting relationships, especially when, as I said before, we don't get a lot of political thrillers that feature and center the voices of women. And so the relationships that they have with their families become all the more interesting, but are going to be written in ways that make us uncomfortable. It does make us uncomfortable to think about a powerful woman in politics who has perhaps emotionally fragile or fractured relationships with her children, which is the case in this book. I think that actually made the character of Ellen more real, uh, more relatable. She has made mistakes. She feels pain about those mistakes and they affect her and impact her decision making. And that's not the kind of inner depth that we get from our male characters when they're in political thrillers. And I think if you're not used to that, it's going to be uncomfortable. But also that uh, discomfort, there's probably some growth on the other side of that. So I'll leave that there. Okay. Oh my gosh. 15 books. You know, I I debated this at the end of my um, 2021 December podcast on books. I think it's episode 26 if you want to go and look at that. Maybe 27, 28. Um, uh, you know, 15 books is a lot of books to cover. And I probably need to take a step back and consider the ways that I could probably not talk about every single book that I read in winter of 2021. If you have feedback on this episode, I would just love it if you would connect with me over on Instagram. You can find me at medium.lady over there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a loyal listener. If this is your first time listening, I would love it if you would give this episode a rating or review wherever you happen to be listening. If you love this episode, I hope that you would share it with somebody and um, invite them to come and join the Medium Lady community. And if you have thoughts and opinions about anything that I've shared here, of course, you can head on over to Instagram. You can find me at medium.lady over there, along with a lot of gratitude and stories, thoughtful writing on my life and my point of view in my feed. Thank you so much for listening. 
My name is Erin. This has been Medium Lady Talks, episode 32, and I will see you again soon. Bye. Bye.